I'm Drew Miller, and you're listening to The Second Muse. If life's a stage and we're all just players, the role you play is silencing naysayers. You strut and fret and say this is the only life we get. Don Chaffer is the cleverest person I know. That does mean he's funny, but it means a great deal more as well. His wit is the kind that doesn't obscure reality, but sheds light on it, often in between laughs. After making many albums with his wife, Lori, as Waterdeep, Don ventured into the world of musical theater, writing for shows like The Unusual Tale of Mary and Joseph's Baby, as well as the almost unforgettable Edwin Booth. Do you remember Edwin Booth? Neither did I. You probably remember his brother, though, John Wilkes Booth. Well, it turns out that Edwin has quite a story of his own, and in this play, Don tells it through the lens of what he calls Edwin's Comascape. In our conversation, Don and I zoom in on a song sung by Edwin's daughter, whose name is, wait for it, Edwina. The song is called Be Invisible. You can probably guess what it's about. I hope listening to Don talk delights you as it did me, and that you find yourself spurred on to investigate something cool you've always wondered about. I've always called this editor versus creator, right? Like there's a creating mode and there's an editing mode. And that, and actually, most of the time when I've talked about it, I've talked about how it's, uh, it's a dicey proposition to try to do both at once. Usually mm-hmm. you need to do some channel switching. Yeah. Because the first muse, which is this inarticulate sort of inspired thing, needs to have some freedom, room to move. The editor, or second muse, if I'm understanding this correctly, yeah. that, that character needs to be permitted not to be so bohemian, right? Like, uh-huh. And you have to be able to like say, okay, now we're going to fine tooth comb this, pick through it, figure out what is um, impeding the goal that we're trying to reach, or the yeah. effect we're trying to accomplish, or the story we're trying to tell, or the emotion we're trying to capture, or whatever it is. So yeah, for sure. What is your relationship like to the second muse? Are you on good terms? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I actually. One of the things that's interesting, because we're talking today about music theater, there's an awful lot of uh, second muse work in music theater, not only because it's way more rewriting than I ever did previously, but also because the inarticulate part is often the first impulse before you even break the story. Hmm. So then you have the hard work of like figuring out what the story's going to be, which is somewhat a first muse thing, but it's also very... There's a lot of like... Uh, There's details that you yeah. have to iron out. Yeah, right? you just have story. to kind of hammer through a story till you get everything in the right sequence and the right characters participating in the scenes, and mm-hmm. you have you know objectives that are impeded and all that stuff. You know, sure. so uh, there's something kind of in that that's um, sort of almost second muse the whole time. Then once you have your basic structure down you have these slots where you know the songs are going to go and there's an awful lot predetermined who's singing it why they're singing it what needs to happen from the beginning to the end yeah all that kind of stuff and so in a way your your first muse has got a kind of like a do you ever see that saturday night live sketch with billy bob thornton where he's talking about what he's going to do with his fenced in area 
No. Anyway, it's a fenced-in area. Your first muse has got a tight okay. place to work in. The fenced-in cool. area in the sketch is about six by two feet, and yeah. it's got a fence around it. And he's trying to figure out what he's going to do with it. That's it excellent. nothing to do with anything. But I'm anyway. definitely going to watch it later. Yeah. Um, so th- this idea that y- you have to f- find inspiration within a tight confine, I've actually mm-hmm. really enjoyed that. Um, partly because I think um, maybe it's the ADD or something like I, I which I have. I, I think it it forces my concentration on certain things Mm. and also it eliminates certain questions most particularly what story are you participating in with this song Mm. so that's like when you're writing a a song song just for fun it could be any story i mean there's no limit to what you could write it as a character you could write it as yourself you could write Mm. it you know in third person omniscient whatever and then then you have to decide what what is this part of and Mm. um and so sometimes for me that would get a little dizzying yeah um more for other people than for myself uh like when i was co-writing because for myself usually it was inspired by some emotion or something but i've really enjoyed music theater because of those the fenced in area (laughs) you you feel set free by the six by two yeah uh fenced in area yeah yeah you're like i'm glad i'm here i'm glad these fences are around yeah because if you didn't have the first muse at all it would be a pretty uninspired like yeah just sort of it's just all the mechanics without the part but you also need to wrangle the bohemian right Right. um (laughs) into (laughs) submission (laughs) yeah he's got to get a job right yeah Yeah. and literally like it you're employing this Mm -hmm. um artistic instinct towards an end yeah and it's something i find really interesting about what you're just saying too is that uh yeah like you're saying with writing a song just any old song it's kind of up to you what purpose the song is serving mm-hmm. whereas in a writing a song for music theater i would imagine you are serving the story so right. like it, the it's built in like its purpose is already there and predetermined does that ever feel like it gets in the way of the uh sort of like the natural flow of of things and like the inspired part of the work like does it ever feel squelched by the fact that it has to do this certain thing very specifically concretely yeah Yeah. uh sure and no (laughs) i mean i would say it's not the same as writing a song for myself so so yeah it's not at all the same experience it's not not at all i mean sometimes it is but i would say the experience of feeling the feels which is a common experience for me as a writer for myself is less common in this okay but i would also say that um the experience of seeing it come to life in other people's mouths and in a character and in a world and in relationships is pretty gratifying and really moving um so i've really enjoyed that part of it Mm -hmm. you know and i also it really expanded the palette of storytelling which i always had an instinct for i think i always had a little bit of an ambition that was outstripped by the song itself Mm -hmm. when i was outside music theater i had these huge 
uh, unwieldy things sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't mean it necessarily in a bad way. Uh, you know, Dylan has big unwieldy things, and I love what he does. So it's sure. th- th- being unwieldy is not necessarily bad. But I was interested to note that when I started doing music theater, it actually focused my writing into a, a more uh, simpler thing in one sense and then mm-hmm. i will also say that musically the room that that's the other thing when you talk about it's not just what the song's about it's also what world the song's in yeah and so if you, it has to sound like that world yeah it has to feel yeah like it. and also just like i guess i mean like if it's in a country music world or if it's in a pop world or if it's in a you're making yeah. these decisions as an as a recording artist that are kind of like here's what i'm trying to do uh, okay. yeah with musicals you, you you have multiple characters, multiple voices, multiple moods, and those things really determine those things really determine what you're writing more than whether it's poppy, yeah, or whether it's alt indie, whatever you know, whatever your goal is for the record or the song. Yeah, so genre plays almost like less of a role in yeah. predetermining what the song needs to be because it's not about genre; it's about serving. Right, the um, story and yeah, yeah. I mean, there's still obviously you have these kind of like you do exercise a certain amount of taste uh, over what it is that you're, what kind of world you're trying to create. But Mm -hmm. it's, I I guess, partly also what I mean is that if you decided you wanted to do something disco as a Mm -hmm. singer songwriter, it would depend on whether you'd had a history doing that or not. Right. In our yeah. case, for the record, as in Waterdeep, we did kind of whatever the heck we wanted. And <laughs> for, for 25 records, we've made everything from disco to folk music. But uh, a lot of people don't feel that sort of liberty. And right. it wasn't always appreciated. So I think that to know that within the context of a musical, if you've set a template... It's an excellent excuse yes, to yeah, just to try go something completely do, do stuff that's crazy. Yeah. And it's appreciated and valued. As yeah. opposed to look down upon for being uh, unrestrained and abusive with your artistic power. <laughs> <laughs> That's overstated, oh but you get the idea. No, I totally... One thing that struck me when you were just talking about how it's so gratifying in a different way to see or to hear a song being sung by a different person mm-hmm. who's playing a character mm-hmm. in a whole world. Mm-hmm. And that is such a different thing than you singing a song that you wrote. Like, when I think about music theater, I imagine that writing for it feels like a more objective exercise. Like, mm-hmm. you are not the subject right. who is singing the song. You are approaching the song and its purpose very objectively about, like, what it needs to do and accomplish. But it's interesting that almost the opposite ends up being true because when you're listening at the end of the whole process to the character singing the song Mm -hmm. that is a very like the character is a subject and that is a very like the song is embedded in their subjective experience that you've poured yourself into Mm -hmm. Um, so that's just fascinating to me that like at the end of the day it's still a very deeply um, resonant experience to to see a character sing the song it's just not you for sure, right. and I would also say it was—I uh, don't remember exactly how it goes—but there's an Oscar Wilde quote about a man is most himself when he wears a mask, 
or something mm. something about telling the truth if That's when really you're wearing cool. a mask. And I think sure. this idea too that su- is surprising and consistently true is you write for a character and you're trying to find some emotional authenticity in that person's circumstances and that relationship, blah blah blah. You write the song and then you come back at some point and go, oh. Wow, that's really informed by this thing that's going on in my own life, or mm. or that has gone on in my own life. You mm-hmm. start to see yourself in these characters, which is, of course, not surprising. You can only right. write what y- you know t- to a degree, right? Yeah. Uh, or at least y- you. I mean, that's a pretty. You know more than you think you do. Yeah. <laughs> but you still can only write what you know. So yeah. that's been uh, exciting and interesting to watch the the way in which i find my myself appear in different characters and different songs and the other thing to keep in mind is that in the broader story of what you're interested in telling and that that's another place where your personality comes out i'm drawn to certain themes and sure so that'll that'll be another surprise surprise it's it's all the stuff i'm always interested in you know kind of thing so it's all coming together now because I'm thinking about artists who I know or like songwriters who essentially have found great freedom in putting on a mask. Yeah. Like I have a memory of, I think it was the spring season of the local show Mm -hmm. Taylor Linhart played. And uh, I think like my favorite song that she played, she prefaced it by saying like, well, I just decided to like try to write a country song. Mm -hmm. Like, if I were to just really stick to the playbook, like what would a country song mm-hmm. written by myself sound like? Mm-hmm. And then it was the most like genuine, sincere, deeply like this is really, really good, mm-hmm. you know, um, kind of song. And I think that's such a good example of putting on the mask and like letting the limitations of whatever the domain is that you're working in right. inform and give you the freedom as an artist to actually end up being yourself like right. because the the key there isn't the country song it's like Taylor Linhart wrote a country song right. and that is what makes it right. meaningful is that like well what does it sound like when I do it right and that's so cool that those sorts of limits and yeah. structures can actually lend people their voice by right participating in them so there's i'm a big brian eno fan who's the producer worked with u2 and coldplay and talking heads and stuff Mm -hmm. he always says that he has this whole spiel on what art is for Mm -hmm. and he's i've heard him talk about it multiple times he's written about it as well but um, one of the things that he talks about is that culture is basically anything we don't have to do that's how he defines culture that's great and he says that all societies do it as soon as you get past subsistence, you start stylizing, whether that's, you know, having a bigger walking stick or a smaller one, or you know what I mean, <laughs> whatever this is. Or like, I like yeah. to wrap my, you know, flint arrowhead on my <laughs> stick with this twine in that direction or whatever it may be. But that, that stylizing is, is the yeah. nature of it. And then he says, and to talk about the arts has to include everything from nail painting to opera is the other mm-hmm. thing he says. And so, and one of the things that he's kind of, preoccupied with this, this idea of so what's it for you know you can yeah. say if an alien comes down and they they say that the um you point to a scientist they point to a scientist say, what are they doing and you say they measure things so they can understand how they work 
and they see an artist with a fair enough you know tubes of things and oh it's a scientist you say no that's an artist and they're like what do they do and he's like what what's the answer to that you know <laughs> and one of the th- he gives several different answers but one of them is em- empathy that our imagination is used to imagine who we would be if we weren't us Mm-hmm. And that part of the process, even when you get a haircut or buy a shirt, is to imagine what person would I be when I'm wearing that shirt as opposed to the one I'm, I have mm-hmm. on. Mm-hmm. And so that's the same thing about what would a country song sound like if I wrote it? Yeah. Or what would I be like if I were writing country songs is another way to think about that. Yeah. And that process actually broadens our empathy as human beings because we can begin to understand other people in a different way. Uh, yeah. Even when we're just getting a haircut. But then especially if Charles Dickens releases Oliver Twist and the upper crust English intellectuals find out that there's actually poverty in London that went way deeper and right. worse than they ever thought, and it stokes a whole social movement. So it can be that grand or it can be as mild as what would I look like with na- different color on hmm. you know, uh, fingernail paint. Or, or what would a disco water deep album yes. sound like? Right. right. Yeah. yeah. Let's switch gears then from mm-hmm. there with all that in mind and um all right so i'm opening up the song be invisible yep which is part of the uh, musical entitled the almost in parentheses almost unforgettable edwin booth so edwin booth was the brother of john wilkes who assassinated abraham lincoln Mm -hmm. and they were both actors born uh into a family of acting their father was a legendary actor who actually was in England, he was kind of the rising star trying to dethrone, as it were, Edmund Keane, who was the reigning Shakespearean actor in London. And it got to the point where the Boothites and Keenites had riots and people were injured and maybe killed, you know. Oh, my goodness. Then he falls in love with the flower girl and abandons his wife and child, moves to America and has 10 children with Marianne Booth, um, although they never married until the very end of his life. And so they're all you know bastard children they're all yeah. illegitimate which was a big deal in right the 1800s so anyway this story is set at the end of edwin's life 1893 is the year that he died and the premise is that he has had a stroke which is what he died of and so this thing is set in what one of my directors referred to as a coma scape like a landscape but oh, a coma. Man. that's uh, incredible so he's unconscious but he can hear the people in the room like he can hear his daughter and his yeah. friend Julia Ward Howe, who wrote the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and people like that. So he's trying to wake up, and he ends up uh, working out a deal with his brother John Wilkes. That if John Wilkes says, "If you get me the crown, uh, I'll, I'll, I can get in a put in a good word," and I, I'm pretty sure I, I can get. He says he can get him awakened, and so Edwin has no idea what the crown is, but of course, you know it all becomes apparent and then eventually he has to not only get the crown but the three stones so that's the structure that basically sets up his kind of dickens-esque christmas carol ghost of future or ghost of christmas past present and future kind of a thing so he's, yeah. he's going through these certain memories to achieve some sort of awareness and at the end of each he gets a, another piece of the puzzle so to speak so this song he's found the crown gives it to John Wilkes and John Wilkes realizes wait the stones are missing and throws it back to him is like this isn't going to work and storms off you know so he sings this song Three Lost Stones and um, and originally that song so one of the big things about music theater is you have to take a character from 
A to B through the course of the song, which in a normal songwriting that's situation that's not a concern, right? You, right. It's just in fact I, I have gotten to the point of saying that the basic unit in in theater or or storytelling in general is dramatic choice, so people making choices that cause them their actions cause consequences that propel the story forward in poetry and s- sort of songwriting it's the un- basic unit is observations so mm. it, i think of it as like the remember the beginning of deadpool and everything freezes in the air mm. like in the mm-hmm. car wreck and yeah. you have that capacity or the matrix did it too first but this capacity to kind of like explore the space with everything frozen in time i think yeah. that's what poetry and and most of what we know as songwriting does best is this yeah. sort of a series of observations that illuminate a moment and usually expand our emotional understanding of it. Yeah. So, that's taken together in a musical, mm-hmm. you have actions and propelled by choices mm-hmm. and that is like propelling the story along and then the song is a moment of observation. It's an Yeah, but it, like, but it, the interesting thing is like you do have to retool as a songwriter. You have to yeah. really think in terms of dramatic action. The, the nature of it is it's some sort of hybrid. Yeah, right? cuz it has but, to also participate yeah. in the action. Yeah. And there are certainly songs that are are not the fundamental unit isn't observation. You take like a Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald, sort of it's observation, you could argue, you know, like observing details, but it's not sure. that's actually trying to move the story along, so. Huh. Anyway, um, point was that we had this song. I I had this song, uh, three lost stones, and Edwin went from being kind of angry about having to find these things to realizing uh, that maybe maybe he's a little bit culpable in this deal. Okay. Maybe there's something he needs to sort of self search. So he's recognizing. Yeah, this is like as a beginning of like, oh, maybe. Maybe I can't blame everybody else for everything, right? And starting to wake up. Yeah. Okay. Not literally, but figuratively. (laughs) Yeah. And then um, his home escape. Yes, exactly. And so, but then I realized that one of the best ways for him to do that was by having this interaction with his daughter. So she comes in and she's basically talking to him, and to her, he's asleep, but he can hear her. And she can't, of course, hear him talking back. Mm -hmm. And that song, then I realized this is an emotional high point, and usually in a musical, when it reaches a peak emotion then it has to be a song right that's the, yeah it's kind of frustrating for the what they call the book writer or the librettist that they all their scenes the climax is always stolen by the songwriter so <laughs> classic anyway. songwriters yeah that's right so three lost stones got split in half i put this scene with edwina followed by the solo for edwina and then when it came back to reprising or reprising whatever the three lost stones after her song all of a sudden i just was like cutting huge chunks of it out and realizing and it ended up coming down to instead of being like a minute 45 it's like 25 seconds the Hmm. reprise so that's that's the old writer's uh thing of kill your darlings right yeah so um so this song was interesting to me that's part of the reason i brought it because it dropped down in the middle and split another song in half Um, yeah it was also originally written to be sung by the mother in the second act, um, Mary Devlin Booth, Edwin's wife, and ended up being sung by the daughter, Edwina, which I think is a remarkable name. And that is historically true? Yes. Edwina, Edwina was born to Edwin. Oh, my. I tried to explain to my wife that we, sh- we should have another 
daughter and call her Donalda, but I can't. No. <laughs> Why not just Donna? Yeah, there you go. Right? That's that's because it's not as exciting as Donalda. <laughs> yeah, Donalda. What a time anyway. to name a child Donalda. <laughs> that would go really well. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so all of this. So you had three stones. I'm just trying three to track. Three lost stones. And then three lost stones. And it got split in half by Be Invisible. Mm-hmm. Um which is now sung by the daughter in Act One. Yep. And the consequence of three lost stones being split in half is that now there's three lost stones, and there's also what was the other half? Then you said there's three lost stones, and then be invisible, and then three lost stones reprise. Reprise. So okay. Just a, gotcha. And the final reprise is actually just like I said, really it's a couple lines. So okay. So let's listen to Be Invisible. All right. so efficient yeah well that's as a song i know that sounds like a weird thing to say but um no that's um that's a good observation a lot of the stuff that um one of the things that's the most painful about doing 
So the, the normal process is, right, you write the show, then you do what's called a table read where actors sit around a table and usually you're playing demos. Mm-hmm. And then the next stage, next step up would be a staged reading or just a reading. And then in that case, the actors actually learn the songs and sing them. And so that's getting it up on its feet, as they say. And okay. so um, the amazing thing is to watch with an audience when you've included a bunch of normal repeating chorus stuff. Mm-hmm. And you can, it, it, people, audience members that are watching musicals have a totally different way of taking in lyrics. Um, they're really listening intently and expecting it to take them somewhere. And when mm-hmm. you do a lot of repeating, you can feel them just zone out. And uh, so it's caused me to. Um, I didn't. I'm not a huge musical fan per se. <laughs> hmm. I got into this because I liked rock and roll and television is how I usually say it. Like I like <laughs> narrative and I like you know popular music. I thought I bet you could put these together and it's like well yeah. it's called the American Musical. It's been around for 150 years. Right. That said, that's a little more like you know um, opera and vaudeville or something, right? It's not rock and roll and television. Right. So. Uh, so trying to blend the pop pop sensibilities with music theater when you have all these heavy lifting jobs to do narratively is mm-hmm. tricky, but that's one of the tricks is be efficient because uh, they'll get bored quick. Yeah. And you really, if there's not action happening in a, in a turnaround or a gap, a music thing, you, you, then you really need to, there's lots of cool licks that I've cut out of songs. It's like, well, <laughs> there's nothing happening here, so we're cutting it, you know. I will say this is a little deceptive because there's a whole monologue in the middle of the song after the first chorus because oh. she's talking to her dad and she tells the story about when she met her husband Ignatius that uh, her, whom her dad hated in real life he referred to him as the Hungarian hog. <laughs> Whoa! And uh, <clears throat> she um, she talks about what it was like when he went and I made this part up, but when Ignatius really saw her, he wanted to know what she thought of the taste of this food or something, and she gives this. And she just felt like uh, there was this discovery that there was all this sort of these riches within her that nobody had ever pointed out before. It was clear as a bell. Yeah. Suddenly I know myself so well. And she says, it's like when those people in California found out there was gold under their land. Hmm. So that's when she says... um, Same old ground, but now there's gold. Yeah. But now you know there's gold there. You know? That's such so, a good lyric. Yeah, really. thanks. Yeah. Um, and that, I think that's what I mean, too, when I say efficient, is that, like, oh yeah, each line feels like it It has a very precise purpose of mm. advancing the character. Yeah. From the first lyric of the whole song all yeah. the way up to the end. Yeah. And by the end, she's free. Yeah. And the song takes you there. Yeah. And it needed every line to get from... Well, thanks. The very beginning to the very end. That's the goal. It's really cool. (laughs) Yeah, it's awesome. It's so fun. One other thing about the process of this, a lot of times I find that, especially for musicals, I like to kind of give myself some fenced-in areas to work within. And so I scratched out most of these songs on the iPad. I used an app called Beathawk and another one called ModStep that are just sequencing apps. Mm -hmm. And it made especially good sense because it was electronic but mm-hmm. that's also kind of limited limited sounds and stuff if i was out in my pro Tools studio it was like i've got so many plugins and just right maybe literally a terabyte of samples so it's like you know endless options so yeah. by sticking with these little kind of hard to deal with apps it made 
both the sounds and also the the parts uh, simpler than I would have chosen. Yeah. So that was one thing. The other piece of it was that I I got into the Beatles a couple of winters ago and could not figure out how on earth these songs made sense. Like I understood what the chords hmm. were, but I was like, how did they come up with this stuff? And I found this guy on the web, uh, the internet, uh, that does a harmonic analysis of every single Beatles song. A harmonica analysis? Harmonic analysis. <laughs> yeah, if you did a harmonica analysis, it would be like two or three songs. And like, yeah. <laughs> she loves you. you. Are you and saying Rocky he analyzes the song just with a harmonica? Like yes, he demonstrates everything right. that they do. Well, what's crazy about it is like yeah. his ability to actually communicate verbally through harmonica. <laughs> No, um, oh, harmonic okay, analysis. Yes. And that sounds excellent. I yeah. want to watch those. And basically what he discovered was because they did a lot of harmonies, the Beatles had comp- often two common tones between any two chords. Hmm, okay, so, so explain that. For so C like, major has a C, E, G in it. Sure. You change any one of those notes, you can get a new chord. C, C minor is C, E flat, G, so the center note changes. Mm-hmm. If you drop the C down to a B, you get... B E G, which is an E minor second inversion. If yeah. you raise the the C E G up to A, a flat, you get an A flat major. Oh. If you go up to A, you get an A minor. Right. So there are these different. I'm sorry, you'd have to also lower the E E E D flat for the A flat major. But anyway, w- w- so kind of what the secret with the Beatles is that they're always in both the major and the minor key. Hmm. And that they're always free to move by a third. Huh. And so he made this network of chords and showed kind of how it works. And they do regular stuff too, four, five, one, these normal sorts of progressions that you're used to, you yeah. know. Do, 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 those, yeah. Know. But they do these really weird ones, you know, going C major, C minor, or or also then once they get a a step away from it and now they're... So they start off in C major, they go to C minor, and, and then they start exploring E flat major, which is the relative major of C minor. They actually have another removal from that. So it's they kind of have like these three tonalities they can work in yeah. with a couple chords stitched together. So once I saw that, I kind of was determined on this show to use some of that stuff. So a lot of times... And I, I noticed this, at the end of like the very first stanza of lyrics of what we just listened to... Mm-hmm you are clearly borrowing from a different tonality and like right. you can really hear that you know right. like it, you don't have to know about music theory to right. to feel like oh ooh that's exciting right. like what a cool Stood chord and fret and say this is the only life we get yeah so like in penny lane there is a barber showing photographs of every head head he's had the pleasure to know right there yeah. you go and all the people that come and go now you went minor so i think it's i don't remember what it is f major or something goes to f minor yeah. from that point and so Whew. that's a lot of uh what i, I was excited about exploring because once i figured it out i was like i can't believe this all my <laughs> life i've thought those things were amazing and it's actually achievable you know to yeah. know how that works so anyway yeah you kind of um does it take away some of the magic though it doesn't not for me good i I mean um that's a that's a question that my wife and i have stood on opposite sides of for a long time does it increase the magic for you to know how like what the tool is that makes the magic happen yeah i'm going back to my original answer i might not have changed it maybe it does change the magic 
but it doesn't for other people. Yeah. And um, I will say that what happens for me, uh, after you learn a thing, anything, it's it's learned. There's no experience like the first time. Sure. For anything. So, uh, then most of what's after that is either discovering something else new, which is always awesome, right. or rediscovering something old. Hmm. And so, neither of those are spoiled by learning. In fact, learning something new is thrilling. Yeah. So, that, that was magical yeah. to me. I think it's my wife is a natural melodist and has a much better ear than me and so mm. she was more concerned about losing that kind of groping for it by ear thing. Hmm. But so I she wants to sort of like intuition is guiding me towards what really sounds right, right. like in melody. Yes. Versus but I don't have that ear and I don't have that natural instinct for melody. So I need help. <laughs> <laughs> you need to be like, okay, here are how all these chords work together. Yeah. And that means I've got these options or I can do these, you know. And uh, Which isn't yeah. to say, once I get the, the skeleton set up of, of whatever that thing is, then there's the first, that's one of the most enjoyable parts, the yeah. first muse. Because you, you get the, the chord progression staked out and then it you start. It sounds like the second muse comes first in some ways. Yeah. And you're laying the groundwork so that. Right. The so that you can have this moment where you're improvising melodies over these kind of odd chords and then finding out what happens. And yeah. a lot of times I make sure I'm recording yeah. at that point because sometimes I w- will not be able to find that again without <laughs> yeah. you know going back and relearning it. And I will also say sometimes when I've improvised something, when I go back to relearn it, it's really hard to relearn. I, I, that's... Yeah, how did uh, I do that? Yeah, I don't Those. understand how I could be like two minutes removed from the experience and completely unfamiliar sometimes. That's so fascinating. So. I feel like you're describing my own personal relationship with Chris Thiele and listening mm. to his music. When you talk about the Beatles and like mm. this harmonic analysis where um, there's a few tricks. Mm-hmm. Well, there's more than a few tricks because mm-hmm. he's kind of a genius. Um, but once you learn a few, it's like, oh, that's mm-hmm. what he's doing. Mm-hmm. Well, that's why that's so cool when he, you know, modulates from this to that. And but it's such a fun experience to discover the sort of like pay no attention to the man behind the curtain, right. you know. Yeah. The other thing that theater writing has done for me is made me zoom out and ask, what's this accomplishing? Yeah. And so that part of it is like, is this sad? Is this happy? Does this suggest aspiration? Does this suggest tension? Yeah. Those kinds of things then it becomes really fun to mess around with it, you know? Yeah. So, this is fascinating to me that usually if you're writing a song, you are searching for its final form Mm -hmm. as one completed song that Mm -hmm. does what it does to the best of its ability. But there are so many circumstances in writing for a play that... I would imagine you are writing a song that you need to be flexible enough to have a reprise or to like be able to have variation Mm -hmm. that you can explore within the play. So it's less that you're writing for this one finished thing than it is um, writing an idea in such a way that it's set up to be Mm -hmm. 
almost yeah. innovated within throughout the story of a play. And I know that's not true of every song that you write for no, but, music but, theater. Yeah, but that's a good point. That is that, a principle that's totally different, and I cannot imagine what that must be like. Yeah, the idea of var- doing variations on it. I and mean, so building I was, in the variation into yeah, the writing. Right, right. I heard this guy Robert Hood. He's a, a, a DJ that does what's called minimalist electronica, and uh, and he said in an interview, somebody's like. You know, he says, people say all the time, well, what, did that take you five minutes? <laughs> you know, because it'll be like, it's a groove that goes for five minutes and barely changes. And then yeah. all of a sudden, one little thing changes and it's like, feels like an apocalypse, you know? <laughs> yeah. And, um, but he, he said that the trick is that not all music bears repeating that much. Hmm. He said, it's actually harder than you think to find something you want to listen to for five minutes straight without it changing what a good insight yeah and so um i think that that aspect of of the uh of writing with themes in mind i think is probably true um Mm -hmm. where some themes are repeat easily repeatable or or re-referenced and and they're also there's a question of when you reference it is it identifiable or is it Everything's kind of da 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 da. It's like if I were that, yeah, you're gonna have a hard time recognizing that, you know. Which is one of the other advantages of this kind of chromaticism. Yeah, it creates melodies that are really distinctive. It's very unique. Yeah, you you can tell, and that's why you know a Beatles song, right? I mean, if there's any lesson, right? Like concrete, go listen to the Beatles. And like, even if you don't understand all these chords that are happening yeah. and whatever, because I don't personally, mm-hmm. um, you can tell that that melody is right. timeless. Like right. it sounds like it was never written. It mm-hmm. has, it has always been what it mm-hmm. is, you know, since before the dawn of time. And yeah. like the way that you get to that kind of thing, which does bear repeating, by the way, yeah, um, is yeah, it's not always super direct, right? And that's fascinating. Yeah. Um, one last question. Um, I am stealing this straight from Jonathan Rogers, mm-hmm. who I have had the pleasure of listening to interview like a million different people. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he always, his last question is always, who is a writer who makes you want to write? So I want to ask, who's a songwriter uh, who makes you want to write songs? I would say, first of all, that I'm most often inspired to write songs by movies or television all right then go that direction it doesn't have to be a songwriter um like i think narrative usually will that's the thing that kind of most completely emotionally absorbs me yeah like watching stories they get really involved and then then it's that up uptick in emotion that usually makes me i gotta go write something yeah it's like music Um, theater yeah from that that or the other big thing that i will sometimes do is i'll watch like instructional videos on synthesizers or things like that and there's just this kind of like oh you could do that oh you could do that and then yeah that kind of like creative itch will start and then you gotta go cool ideas yeah it's like oh "Oh, i gotta go do something yeah that's awesome. Um, as far as songwriters, though, uh, well, so Aaron Sorkin's probably my favorite writer. Oh, for, man. Yeah. So the West Wing I've watched maybe seven times. I feel like Aaron Sorkin is like cilantro. Like, you're born either, yeah. you have the gene for yeah. Aaron Sorkin, or you're like, I hate it. Right, it tastes right. like soap. Yeah. So West uh, Wing, Sports Night, and yeah. Studio 60 on the Sunset Strip were his mm-hmm. big TV shows. Plus, he did Molly's Game, Steve Jobs' movie, and something else. Anyway. Yeah. 
he's great but, yeah i love him and then um my from songwriting i mean my kind of trinity are paul simon bob dylan and the beatles bob dylan right. being number one um but Boney Vare, I would say Justin Vernon in yeah. recent years has moved me an awful lot. I, and when I hear him write, I find that I want to figure out how to get, get in that m- space. Mm-hmm. You know, it's so. a very particular right. space. Yeah. yeah, that's yeah. really cool. But it's really, I like to say that he feels like he's. Um, like uh, you know, whale songs. I think you could travel for a thousand miles or something. Yeah. I always felt like he was like underwater sea creature sort of songwriting, where it's subconscious to subconscious. Strangely, I, I totally know what you're saying. Yeah, there's something about <laughs> even in the lyrics, they, you know, they don't make sense, but they make sort of archetypal sense or something. Yeah. that's very primal and oh, I dig that stuff. Yeah, that's really Regina like Spector for me. Oh yeah, she her. She has a very good way of um, making sort of subconscious imagery and connections. Right. Uh, all of a sudden, kind of like thrown into focus. And yeah. Yeah. Which is a um, is an interesting world to live in because it's the opposite of James Taylor or something, whom oh, I also yeah. love. Right? right. Where there's this kind of like songwriting logic to it. Yeah, there's like realism yeah. and surrealism almost. Yeah, and there's one thought that obviously is going to hand off to the next one. Not that he doesn't surprise you, but it's, like I said, there's a logic that feels inevitable about it. Paul yeah. Simon's brilliant at that as well, yeah. right? But these other, yeah. But Dylan, for example, you just don't know what's coming. and Right. He, I mean, musically, you, you know do. what's coming. <laughs> sort of, although he, he can definitely... He's an underrated singer and and melodist, you know. Yeah. yeah. David Byrne, or I think or Elvis Costello said, Dylan can write a great melody. He doesn't always sing it, but he can write it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. I've heard um, Ben Fold's quote is that he's like, I I write wonderful melodies that I can't sing that are like out of my range. And mm-hmm. then that's just, but I am the only one who can, like, I'm singing them because I'm the artist. So that's just how it has to go. Yeah. And that's what totally. ends up on a record. Like, Sometimes it sounds like that. Yeah, totally. <laughs> like, yeah. Right. You know, um, good explanation. But yeah. sometimes it also sounds great. I love Ben Folds' voice. Yeah, yeah I totally. think there's, yeah, it's great. Well, thank you so much for taking some time yeah, to for talk me. with me. I loved getting to learn all about how all the pieces fit together yeah, for cool. the almost unforgettable story. Yeah, almost Edwin. unforgettable Edwin Booth. Yeah. Well, cool. Thanks, Thanks so much. The Rabbit Room has partnered with Lipscomb University to make this podcast possible. Lipscomb has graciously given us access to their recording studio in the Center for Entertainment and Arts building. We're so grateful for their sponsorship, their encouragement, and the good work they do in Nashville. This podcast was produced by The Rabbit Room, where art nourishes community and community nourishes art. All our podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our members. To learn more about us, visit rabbitroom.com and to become a member, rabbitroom.com slash donate. Stay